back to my channel and bite size stories. This is called The Angel by Richard Crawford. It's late. The night slides vodka sodden towards its end. I'm behind the bar, rolling a cigarette. The filter stashed between my lips. But some instinct always warns me to his presence. It comes in late. When the club is winding down, the dead pre-dawn hours are his time. There are many of the club's regulars you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. But something about him sets my teeth on edge. My fingers take a pinch of baki and thoughtlessness. I continue. Routine task as I follow his progress through the crowd. I... See, there's a girl with him tonight. She's tall. Whisper thin. Her moves like a supermodel. Long, easy stride. Killer confidence. But even from a distance, I feel the pain behind the show. As she comes close, I see it in her eyes. A broken angel. Innocence and pain. The same as all his women. I've never seen him with the same one twice. The filter... Dangles between my lips, the roll-up forgotten. I snap my mouth shut and pick up the back tin. My fingers shake a little as I stash at the roll-up. He leads her up to the bar. It's tight, packed, but a space clears as he approaches. A mane of shaggy dark hair hangs down his back. And the writhing dragon tat on his neck disappears beneath a worn leather jacket. There's always something familiar in him. Her eyes meet and hackles rise, like to like. Tequila shots, he says, staring down at me. I pour the shots and watch the angel. Beneath the strobing lights, her hair gleams silver, slicked down close to her skull like a douche from one of those old movies. It makes her look porcelain fragile. Silver studs in her nose and ears. She wears a silver bracelet, more like an intricately engraved glove, on her right hand. I've never seen anything like it before. Some sort of bondage antique jewellery piece, maybe. The lights give it a shimmering life of its own, and for a moment, I can't seem to tear my eyes away. She moves when he moves, like she can't stay close enough to him. The pack of guys leer as she gives the tiniest of shivers. The guys move towards her, like filings to a magnet. He lets them come. Then one look from dead eyes and they ooze backwards. The angel leans into him, grateful. He's turned away to talk to some bloke, paying no attention to her, and she catches me staring. Aquamarine eyes hold mine for a moment, and she gives me a little smile. I want to come over the bar and take her away from him. He turns back, sees me looking, and his cold black eyes shrivel my nuts. I look away. <clears throat> Coward and worse. He stares at the bar. She's him like skin, and he smiles when he sees me hopelessly watching. Waves me back over. Another round. I take his money and walk away. Down the bar, Josie's serving a crowd of loudmouth girls. I slide behind her and put a hand on her ass. Get lost, she growls. 
and I wonder what she's seen. When I glance back, he has his fingers curled loosely round the angel's neck. My breath catches. Josie shoots me a look. I need a smoke, I say. Are you okay? She nods casually. Never any doubt, she has the bar covered. I lean close, avoiding her gaze, and whisper thanks in her ears. At the door, I turn for a last look at my angel. Outside, bins crowd the alley. The air hangs sick with the smell of rotting food and rats. Beneath it all, the stink of the river, running harder, only a few yards away. I don't even know a name. I don't want to know a name. I think about Josie, smart mouth, easy going. No punter can get the better of her. Hard as nails, till you know her. Then a heart bigger than the London bus. But it doesn't work. Aquamarine eyes and smiling lips took my attention away. I stay outside with the rats, start another cigarette and watch the river. It's silent. An unfed monster waiting to swallow up the city. I flick the cigarette butt into the dark water and turn back. Josie will be pissed off if I leave her and the bouncers to deal with the end of the night drunks. The door opens before I reach it. It swings softly back, hangs waiting. I slide into the shadows, knowing, sensing her like a familiar scent on the air. He leads her out and his tequila husky voice is as soft as a whisper. I have something for you. A promise made without looking back. No doubt she will follow, drawn to him and the promise. It's not one I would want to redeem. The angel doesn't hear what I hear. He guides her ahead of him and moves up close behind her. His hands are on her and they pass at me, a shadow among shadows, and walk down to the river. He grips her arm and she stops, lets him press her up against the wall. He comes up close, catches her wrists and lifts her arms above her head as he kisses her. Silver and fragile, the fabric of her shirt quivers an invitation. With one hand he reaches out to undo the buttons. Pale skin glimmers as he draws her away from the wall. The shirt falls. She slides her arms around his neck and melts against him. He presses her against the wall again. They kiss. I feel sick. A mix of lust and disgust and fear. The kiss is long and greedy. It holds him motionless. And only when she draws away do his hands rise to touch her. She's still, her breath shallow, as his hands slide down across her skin. His eyes are locked on hers. I watch as his hand reaches for the blade. He slowly raises it. If she sees it, there's no sign. I'm glad she has no fear in these last moments. I hear her gasp as the metal touches her skin. Shush, he smiles and presses a flat blade against her neck. Blood oozes, red against her white skin. Her red tilts back in some sort of surrender and he snarls with pleasure. I feel the same urge of power. He wants the final moment to last forever. But the blade trembles as his control weakens. He sighs and his fingers tighten on the hilt. He enjoys it for one last lingering moment. With the grace of a dancer, she lowers her right arm, the one with the bracelet. Fingers splayed in some sort of plea. 
He shakes his head. Her hand drops lower. As I watch, silver shimmers and springs towards his ribs. The spring mounts a blade rips deep. Though she stands motionless. Emotionless. He makes a soft noise. No time for more. The knife twitches and drops from his hand. The tableau holds for a moment. Then a hand and... Then a hand twists, jerks upwards towards his heart. A slight smile on her lips as she looks into his eyes. Some silent, final communion. Before he falls, she walks him back towards the river. He can't resist her. His hands clutch and flail at empty air. With a last push, he's gone. The night is silent apart from distant sirens and the roar of traffic. The city is never silent. The quiet beats in my heart. She bends, picks up her shirt and holds it in one hand. Blood drips from the other, a darkness running from the blade. She watches the river for a moment and then turns and strides towards me. I wait on her judgment. She comes close. Aquamarine, aquamarine eyes search my soul and I forgot how to breathe. It was rotten bad, she says, but you know that. She is tall, as tall as I am. A finger traces a line on my jaw. The bloodied blade glistening close to my eye. The world's a better place. Something like humour in her voice, but cold. So cold. I look into her eyes and I cannot look away. She waits, holding all the power, and I nod. Her other hand comes up fast and she smiles as I flinch. The coldest smile in the world. She touches my face, soft but not to caress. Next time, her fingers rest cold against my skin, you'll tell me. I nod. A pact is made. Good, she says as she watches me for a moment longer, until she's certain I understand the gift she's giving. She turns away and disappears into the night. Josie's face flashes before my eyes. I find an old paper and see the headline a few days later. A photo of it, but his face beneath the headline, Manhunt, of, after two women attacked, the paper's torn. I spread it on the bar, piece it together, the text blurs, two women attacked in London Park, one dead, one critical. I remember the look in the angel's eyes, and no, she'll be back. The end. And that's the end of the angel. If you didn't understand the story, um, he was a murderer. He was attacking women and murdering them. She was the angel of vengeance. And so when he slit her throat, he could not kill her because she's immortal. She's an angel. So she ripped out his heart and uh, pushed him in the river. That's what happened. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and back to size stories. This is called Deva A Night Off by Lincoln Cole. Did you see where he went? Dominic asked, stepping up alongside his friend and glancing over the crowd. The Halloween party at the Rustin Ale was in full swing and everyone was wearing a costume. 
the likelihood of spotting their demonic target in the crowd was getting less likely by the second. No, Curtis replied, but I know where he's heading. Dominic could barely hear him over the sound of the music. Curtis dropped down off of the raised dance platform and pushed his way through the club, heading for the alleyway out back. Dominic followed, glancing behind them to make sure they weren't being followed. The music disappeared when they stepped outside and closed the door behind them. It was a cool night, and the wind whipping over his skin refreshed him. Just once, he said, I would like to come to one of these parties when we're not working. We're always on the job. Freda needs us to handle this tonight. You would think we would get at least Halloween night off, right? Curtis ignored him and began walking down the alley. Their target was ahead of them. By maybe 50 metres, hands tucked into his pockets of his sweatshirt and hood pulled over his shoulder. He was heading for the street and didn't know he was being followed. Curtis slipped a pistol out of his pocket, picking up the pace. I thought we need him alive, Dominic whispered, falling into step beside his friend. That's the best case. I'm not taking any chances. They were maybe ten metres behind when Dominic's foot scuffed across the pavement. The man glanced back at them, and time seemed to stop when he recognised them. Crap, Dominic said. Everything happened all at once. The man in the hoodie turned and sprinted down the alley, and Curtis raised his pistol. He fired three shots. The first two missed, but the third tagged the demon in the collarbone. He barely even flinched and kept sprinting towards the mouth of the alley. The two hunters took off after him, and now Dominic slid his gun free as well. We can't let him get away, Curtis said. Dominic didn't reply. Their target was a ruthless and conniving creature that had already wrecked three bodies in the last two months. If he got away now, he would simply find a new person to inhabit and disappear, wasting months of tracking. He didn't know why Freda needed him, but it was something big. The demon ran down the street to the right, weaving through traffic. It was late at night, or early morning, depending on who you asked. But there were still people out and about. It was, after all, Halloween. They dodged through the crowd after him, only a few steps behind. The demon reached an intersection and ran into the middle of the road, forcing traffic to stop and swerve around him. Horns blared, and drivers shouted in anger, but the demon ignored them. Dominic slid over the hood of one of the cars, closing the distance to his prey. The demon made it to a construction area with a wooden overhand protecting the sidewalk. Instead of running under the overhang, it leapt into the air and landed on top of it, climbing the scaffolding up the front of the building. Great, Dominic mumbled, climbing up the fence to chase after it. I'll go around. Curtis ran down the road to try and cut the demon off. That left Dominic in pursuit alone, scaling the side of a building in pursuit of the demon. Its target was found an opening inside on the third floor and jumped in, running toward the far side of the building. Dominic rolled in after it, raising his pistol to fire. He didn't aim for the body, but instead went for the leg. His second shot pegged the demon in the calf and it stumbled forward as the muscles of the body was inhabiting gave out. He staggered to the ground, giving Dominic enough time to catch up. He came in hard, kicking and punching at the demon. The demon deflected and dodged his attacks, finding its footing and backing away. 
It encountered deflection. It deflected a kick from Dominic, and punching him first in the kidney and then the chest. It followed it by a roundhouse kick to the side of the head, throwing him into the wall. Then it turned to run again, reaching the other side of the building and stepping out of one of the open windows. Dominic moved to follow, dazed and staggered, but he was still going after it. This could have gone better. Outside he saw the demon climbing down the scaffolding towards another overhang two floors below. It was moving slowly, barely having use of its leg, but it had a decent head start. Down the street Dominic could see Curtis rounding the corner coming to help. He slipped out the window and moved quickly down the scaffolding, ending up near the second floor just as the demon stepped under the wooden overhang. Here goes nothing, he mumbled, taking a steady breath. He leapt off the scaffolding onto the demon, landing heavily on it and slamming them both down onto the overhang. They landed hard and he felt the structure wobbling beneath them. The demon rolled over, elbowing Dominic in the ear, and then it tried to crawl away. He grabbed the demon by the leg, shifted, and then threw him sideways off the overhang. It slammed onto the roadway and lay still. Curtis ran up to it, kneeling over top the demon and checking if it was still alive. Dominic climbed down off the railing, landing on the road next to them. Together, they dragged the demon onto the sidewalk. Nice job, Curtis said, short of breath. Let's get him back to Frida. Just once, Dominic reiterated, shaking his head. I would like to pretend we have normal jobs. The end. And that is the end of that bite-sized story. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. This bite-sized story is called Jealous, A Wolf's Heart. Camilla Cross is the author. He told her he was busy that evening which was about two weeks before the Halloween dance. His mother also had him already running errands for her, while she went out with her friends for some kind of night out on the town. He sounded disgusted with the very idea, as if it repulsed him to know that his mother had a social life. I could come over and cheer you up, you know. Lindy purred, her gravelly voice even scratchier than usual. Gabe had laughed at that, but it was different this time around. Something in the tone of his voice was off. Her acute hearing had picked it up the second he answered the phone, but she ignored it, decided it was all in her head. He told her his herons would take all night and that maybe they could go out tomorrow. His mother would likely sleep until noon, which would allow him to sneak out of the house in the morning. Maybe we can go to the lake, he suggested. Do you know how to swim? He was trying to distract her, and she knew it. But Lindy played along and even planned to fish out last year's swimsuit. She and Gabe began dating at the start of summer. She hadn't told him yet about her affliction, but prayed that he wouldn't be too put off by it. After all, the small population of werewolves in their town was peaceful, so long as they were able to get their hands on enough raw meat during the full moon. She remembered being a puppy and running round under the light of the first swollen moon, chasing bunnies and deer. Her father had caught her 
in one big claw and stuffed a small stake in her mouth. She was five when she turned. Her mother was human and hadn't really wanted the werewolf life for a daughter. As peaceful as they were, there were still people who didn't quite understand their kind. But Lindley had gotten into a wrestling match with a baby cousin who was already a full werewolf and he accidentally bit her. The rest was history. Now she used all her heightened senses in order to figure out why her new boyfriend was lying to her. He seemed to really like her and she was quickly falling in love with him, which was dangerous. Her mother had warned her about falling in love with the humans when you were any part werewolf, let alone fully changed, but she couldn't help it. To her, Gabe was a perfect guy and very handsome. She already dreamed of having his babies. They would get his tan skin and light brown curly hair, maybe her button nose and blue-violet eyes. But God, she was only 16. And if he was acting so strange after barely a few months, what would he be like after a year or a decade? She decided she had to fix this now before it all went to shit. It wasn't too hard to track him down. She still had the sweater he'd wrapped her in one night during the last week of the humid summer evenings when she pretended to be cold just to snuggle up to him. She could practically feel her tail wag that night, even though there wasn't a full moon then. She shook those thoughts off her head because really, what would they matter if she had to tear his limbs off for cheating on her and began to follow his scent? This wasn't right. Using her senses to track down her boyfriend and not trusting him like a girlfriend was supposed to do. He had lied to her and betrayed her trust anyway. So this was really all his fault. She spotted him walking down the street with a bouquet of flowers in his hand and his hair slicked back, actually combed for once. Alindy felt her heart drop. The bastard was cheating on her. She growled low in her throat and began stomping after him, keeping her distance so she could out him in front of whatever hussy he... She paused. He wasn't walking towards any restaurant or even the movie theatre. He made a sharp left into the cemetery. Alindy frowned as she crept after Gabe, following his scent so that she could stay far enough away and not be seen. He didn't even pause for a second. He knew exactly where he was going. She continued to follow him as he wove through the gravestones until he came to a big marble cross. It looked relatively new and uncracked among the rest. Gabe stopped in front of it, placed his flowers at the base, then got on his knees and pressed his forehead against the cool stone. She could hear him murmuring something, a prayer, maybe before he pulled away and sat cross-legged, right there in the damp grass. Hey, Dad, he said, and Lindy's paw flew to her mouth, reflexively, to stifle a gas that sounded more like a faint yelp. A long time no see. Boy, have I got a lot to tell you. <clears throat> My girlfriend and I. Lindy smiled with tears, misting in her eyes and turned around, making her way back quickly through the cemetery. She took a deep breath when she hit the streets and gave a relieved sigh. She started to make a list of all the ways she could make this up to him. Perhaps a few dozen cookies would do it. Or she could cook him his favourite dinner, if she had to. There were thousands of possibilities, and each one sounded better than the last. She had a big to-do list. The End
and that is a tale of, I guess it's a werewolf in love with a human. <laughs> Interesting story. Um, but the author has obviously the full version of that book, which I can put in the description where you can find it. That is just a bite-sized section from the whole story. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. This bite-sized tale is called In the High of the Beholder by Bill Hyatt. Inga gave him another musical sound, sounding laugh. You're not a monster. Diablo looked back at her, his expression as serious as a train wreck. It's all a question of perspective. Of course, when your parents name you after the devil, it's hard not to wonder what's wrong with you. Inga chuckled this time and took a sip of a red wine. He noticed she had hardly touched her food. That was annoying, since he'd taken her to the most expensive place in town for their Halloween date. Annoying, but expected. Ah, your parents aren't the only ones with no common sense about baby names. My family was Romanian, but my mother insisted on Inga, which sounds Scandinavian. Diablo had to agree the beautiful olive-skinned brunette across from him did not look particularly Scandinavian. She picked the name because Inga means angel in Romanian. You're lovely enough to be an angel, he told her. That wasn't just a line. He really meant it, despite his unemotional tone. Inga gave him a Mona Lisa smile. You're certainly not ugly enough to be the devil, though, for all I know, you may be horny. Back got a flicker of a smile from Diablo. Inga had begun to think he didn't know how to smile. When I was twelve, I killed one of my friends, he said. Without a trace of emotion in his voice, Inga's smile vanished. That's not funny, she said, looking into his dark eyes. Darker even than hers. They complimented his dark hair and skin. Skin that was almost like ebony to her ivory. It wasn't meant to be. It was an accident, surely, she protested, still not certain if he was joking or not. He sighed. It was an accident. I gave him too much of what I have. Inga raised an eyebrow. If you don't want to talk about it, no, I do. I've never talked about it with anyone before. I'm, I don't really know how to explain what I am. I guess you could say I'm... An inverse vampire. Inga leaned closer. Is that some kind of dig at my Romanian background? Even in folklore of the old country, there's no such thing as an inverse vampire. What do you do? Make other people drink your blood? Not exactly, Diablo replied slowly. Vampires lack a life force of their own and have to keep drawing it from others by drinking their blood. Vampires aren't real, Inga said. Diablo ignored her. Not a problem. She usually had with men. I, on the other hand, produce too much life force. If I don't offload, is the best word I can think of, if I don't offload some of it onto someone else every so often, I'd explode. You've got to be kidding, she protested. I've had this problem ever since puberty, he continued, again acting as if he, she had said nothing. But I didn't really know what I was doing at first. 
Diablo, she snapped, thinking that perhaps saying his name would get his attention. He stopped and looked at her. I would think giving people more life force would be a good thing, she said, beginning to wonder if she was having dinner with a madman. Wouldn't it make them stronger? Maybe even heal them if they were injured in some way? Diablo nodded. Yeah, it would, in small enough doses. My problem was I didn't know how to control the flow, from me to someone else at first. That's why my friend died. I gave him too much, and his heart couldn't take the strain. Inga noticed his eyes almost seemed to glow. Must be a trick of a light. The reflection of the flickering candle flames. I cried for days, Diablo said. But then I knew I'd have to, <clears throat> I'd have to try again. I could feel the life force building up, burning me inside. I practiced animals. I killed my poor dog. A couple of our neighborhood pets. That made me feel even worse. But I did eventually get the hang of how much I could safely transfer to any person at any time. Inga leaned in even closer. But how? How do you transfer part of your life force to another? Blood? Diablo, Diablo chuckled to himself then, but it was a cold chuckle. I think Santiago would have barked at drinking my blood. Barked and lived. No, I can do it by touch. Skin on skin does the trick. But you've touched me, and thank God it doesn't happen automatically, or I'd probably have killed more people when I was young. I have to will it to happen. It's safe when you do it, now though? asked Inga, staring at him intensely. There's no danger. I haven't killed a human since Paul. Santiago, replied Diablo. Inga started looking at him as if she was starving, and he was an enormous steak. Ironic, since the filet mignon lay practically untouched on the plate in front of her. Prove it to me, Diablo. Let's make love tonight. When we lie together skin on skin, as you said, give me some of your life force. There's no need to wait, said Diablo, grabbing her hand roughly. Instinctively, she wanted to pull away, but it was already too late by the time her muscles started to react. She could feel the life force flowing into her, burning her. She went from mild discomfort to agony in seconds. Only self-control, honed by long practice, prevented her from screaming. She wrenched her hand away from his, but she knew she was too late. No, I haven't armed any humans since Santiago, said Diablo calmly. But I do have an interesting effect on vampires. He abruptly rehumanized, body shook as he realized what she lost. You, you are a monster, she whispered. It's all a matter of perspective, replied Diablo. Voice cold as ice. As far back as he could remember, Bill Hyatt had a love for reading, so intense he eventually ended up owning 8,000 books. Not counting e-books. He was an ex-English teacher, it says. He had little time to write, though he always felt it was something he wanted to get out of his system. But this is part, this story is from his book. But it's far, part of a bigger fantasy book, which I would assume is about vampires. Um, But that's all we get because it's just a bite-sized bit. <laughs> So the idea of that is she's a vampire and he's 
well, I guess he's a vampire, but is an internal vampire. So he gives life force, she takes life force. That's why it was burning her when he did it to her at the table. But yeah, thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. This is the last bite size tale from this particular selection anyway. And it's called Hunting Party by A.E. Wasp. Sunset Cloud loves the way they look. All the different colour tents spread out in the snowy glade. You never know what you're going to get when you pick up one of those brightly coloured coverings. Generally, the bigger ones have some good stuff inside, but not always. Sometimes they have only one human and a bunch of inedible things, but that one human is often the sweet, melt-in-your-mouth kind. Sunset Cloud stays away from the smallest containers. The cramped, the only comfy are shin ones. They're notably filled with the stringy beef jerky humans. She hates those. Old tree breaker likes those the most. Says he keeps his jaw strong. But more likely his constant talking is the reason for his jaw strength. She likes little fat with the meals. It's good for a coat. Alpenglow said her hair shined like the river in the moonlight. Maybe she'll invite him for a swim in the moonlight when he thaws the hit. Treebreaker pushes closer to her. She growls at him, showing fang as she does. Sorry, he says. She grabs his arm, her claws like daggers on this dull grey fur. She remembers when his fur was as bright as the leaves of the aspen before the snow. But that was a long time ago, when she could still walk under her mother's legs and her feet were smaller than a human's. Now she's the tallest in the clan, and her footprints draw spotters from all directions. Don't move. He stops, head hung, eyes down, cast. She pities him, his strength leached away by the last hundred years. She knows it will be her one day. The more cubs she bears, the more she feels the passing of time and the weight of mortality. So, she fights it the only way she knows how. <clears throat> By ensuring that the name of the Sunrise Clan, Sasquatch on the Middle Mountains, will go down in legend. <clears throat> For too many years, the Sasquatches of Western Water Clan have been prominent along clans. They hold records for both the closest encounter with humans and for the number of encounters. And don't think they don't brag about that at every gathering. She gets tired of hearing how they found the perfect time of day and lighting to show just enough to keep the humans coming back, but never enough for absolute proof. And the Western Water Clan is wasteful too. They eat almost none of the humans they find, preferring to play with them instead. They get the humans all hopped up and excite them and then just let them go. Of course, they can live on loggers and bear alone. Food's a little more scarce here in the high rockies. The sunset clouds expectations for tonight. A sky high. The last path she made over rocks through piles of fallen pine needles with the occasional enormous print just clear enough to get hopes up was a work of art. The humans started entering the glade an hour or so ago after a two-day walk from the nearest road. Humans walk slowly, 
and, ponderously in the snow, nightfall forces them to stop and settle. Tomorrow she'll get up early to look for her. She counts eleven containers, all bright colours. A few of the humans move around, doing whatever it is humans do. A loud shuffling, shuffling from behind her announces Alpenglow's arrival. Snow falls from the tree with a soft pitter-patter as he slides to a stop behind her. Muted as the sound is, it still attracts the attention of at least one of the humans in the clearing below. She grabs Alpenglow, pressing him deeper into the shadows. Quiet, she hisses. He peers around her shoulder. So many. Are we going to get one tonight? I hear it's easy when they're in dens. The bears do it all the time. That's why bears get hunted, Sunset Cloud answers. His mouth opens in an O of understanding, and he nods. He's not the brightest squatch, but he's strong and good-looking. She probably should have left him behind on this trip. But the nights are long and cold this time of year. A little company makes them warmer and brighter. His red hair feels silky under her hands and she pats him reassuringly. Don't worry, we'll get one tomorrow. After we play with them for a while. Alpenglow hugs her, smiling, and she leans into him. He's almost as tall as she is, his feet almost as large. Maybe we'll be a good father for her cubs. If she's lucky, they'll have his looks and her brains. Back to the cave, she says. I'll meet you there after I lay some more tracks. Alpenglow leaves with a nose nuzzle. Tree breaker with a grumble, she ignores both of them, caught up in the fantasy of knocking the western water clan off their high perch. As the sun slips behind the mountains, a flash of light catches her eye. Two humans watch her from across the snow. The game is on. From the other side of the glade, the man and woman watch her go. The man drops his high-powered binoculars. The woman looks through her scope a little longer. Should we go after them? he asks. There's three of them, two of us, but we have guns. He points, rifle up slope. One of them is ten feet tall, she says. Good point. I just can't wait to show up at the BRFO conference with an actual capture. Screw those Washington guys and their own focus videos. Tomorrow, she smiles. <clears throat> what he likes in planning, he makes up for enthusiasm and looks. Don't count your Sasquatches before they're caught, she cautions. They head back down to the tents. I hate winter camping. The guy complains. I bet we can find a way to get it warm. Now you're talking. He grabs her arm, hurrying her. She looks back up the hill. Tomorrow. The end. And that's the last of the stories. And if you didn't understand, that's basically a story saying that Sasquatches leave their tracks and search to lure humans into their dens where they eat them, <laughs> basically. But it's just a fictional story, by the way. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Thank you.